And so it's appropriate to call it the bride city. And so it's magnificent. In essence, when it comes down out of heaven, God is shouting, here comes the bride as it sits on this new earth. And the bride city is indeed appropriate because Old Testament saints are described as the bride of Yahweh, Jewish people, and Gentile proselytes who believed in the God of Israel. And the New Testament church is called the bride of Christ. And so this is the bride city. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, A Biblical Tour of Heaven. Revelation chapter 21 verse 6 says, Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. As we read through today's selected scripture, we are reminded that heaven is both a pleasing and perfect place. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. And so sadly, sometimes when Christians, the average Christian, think about heaven, they only think of it as a place, well, you know, it's a good place and we'll all be happy there. But most have never really considered the implications of this new heaven and this new earth. It's brand new. It's spanking brand new. Again, it's called the New Jerusalem. It's called the Golden City. Sometimes we refer to Jerusalem as the Eternal City, and rightly so, because while the current Jerusalem that you may visit will someday be obliterated, the name and the city of Jerusalem, which is viewed in Scripture as the center of the earth, will literally sit on a brand new earth. And so we're going to experience in the capital city. So again, people think of, well, the Father's house, but that's just the capital city of a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. The holy city, New Jerusalem, notice, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. We might call it downtown heaven. This is just the capital city. This is just what your loved ones who are at home with the Lord, they're just experiencing a smidgen of what God has for us. And one of the reasons God, again, spends two chapters on unfolding the new Jerusalem and helping us to get a picture of its splendor is, again, it's a reflection of the new heaven and the new earth that will also be glorious. This first prophecy of it descending is given by Jesus He speaks to seven churches, and when he writes to the church at Philadelphia, he instructs them about the city of my God, uh, Revelation 3.12, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So the fact that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven tells you it's already in existence. And that helps you to connect the dots between the Father's house and all these other terms that are used. Again, in verse 2, I saw the new, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You ought to circle that word holy. It becomes very important to John, as we'll see, before this section of Scripture is over. So right now, the Father's house, right now, the New Jerusalem, right now, heaven, it just includes heaven but someday it's going to get a whole lot bigger. Now, sometimes people, they think about heaven, and they think of this dreamy place and just sitting on clouds and people playing harps, and they have all these 
false views based on cartoons and other things about what heaven is like. And some secretly, I'm not sure, you know, I I mean, I want to go to heaven, obviously, and I want to see Jesus, but we're going to have one big worship service. Well, what will we have done after a million years and we've sung through the hymnal mat a hundred thousand times? What are we going to do next? (laughs) There's a whole lot more than just singing, though that will be a very, very important part. God hasn't told us everything. He hasn't even begun to reveal all that we're going to do there. He's giving us just a glimpse, and rightly so. Listen to these words, because now we see through a mirror dimly, someday we're going to see clearly our little finite puny puny minds can't comprehend it all. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12 too. He's speaking of himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, 14 years from the time he's penning this epistle, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know. In other words, the vision was so real, so powerful. He said, I don't know if, you know, the Lord took me there in a vision or if I was literally physically there. That's how real it was. In either case, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. So here's our three heaven slide, as I call it. Paul was suddenly caught up into the third heaven, which goes past the blue sky of Earth's atmosphere. It goes past the second heaven of outer space to the very throne room of God, the home of God, the place where God is today. Furthermore, he writes in verse 4 of chapter 12 that he was caught up into paradise, paradosis. So again, a term that carries over from Old Testament Paradise, Abraham's bosom, we study that. It's also used of the new, uh, the place where people are today. I was caught up into paradise and I heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, unlike these modern pretenders, and that's what I call them, they're liars. Let's just be truthful, they're liars, or they are deceived. And all the popular books that they write who claim to have had this sensational trip to heaven and to enlighten you so you can buy their book. Paul didn't even see what he is describing. All he did was hear it. And it was so powerful, God said, you can't write about it. So what makes me think that these new Johnny-come-lately people can write about heaven when Paul wasn't able to write fully about what he had seen? Because again, God would not have them. He's describing heaven in a way that we can absorb what we can absorb. Trying to describe heaven in our fallen, finite bodies, though we've been born again, would be like trying to describe my first driving experience to my dog Speckles. Or it might be like trying to describe humility to a Clemson fan. It's just impossible. You can't do it. But notice here in verse 2, this place is called the holy city. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Please know, this New Jerusalem is not like any other city. There's no politics here. God is over it all. And everyone present is in a glorified body. And unlike our cities that seem to be just corrupting week by week with growing violence, which God said is what will happen at the end of time. It's not that we shouldn't do everything in our power to change it, to fight it. I'm going to go down with a fight. But I understand that there's coming a time where you cannot reverse what will happen to a nation when they suppress the truth of God. And it's not just happening to America. It's happening all across Western Europe and other nations of the world. 
And so you're afraid in some places to go out at night. 28 cities characterized by violence and lawlessness and murder as they reported last week. No such things in this place, no corruption. And so when Hebrews 11 describes a man like Abraham, he desired a better country that is a heavenly one, a place that God had prepared. And when those people thought about it. Remember, they were nomads. They wandered and wandered and wandered and lived in tents. And and they sought a place where there would be safety and consistency and joy and fellowship. And the wandering would stop. And so we are going to a city that is secure, where there's warmth and joy and, and peace and love and the Lord himself the place that Jesus speaks of in John chapter 14. And remember, this is just the capital city that's going to sit on a new heaven and a new earth. Reading further into verse 2, this place is called a holy city, notice, as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, the word adorned is the Greek word cosmeo. It means to decorate, to make beautiful, to fix up. We get our English word cosmetics from it. And so we speak of a bride who prepares herself for her wedding day. I do weddings here occasionally. The wedding's at 2 o'clock. And then the the director will say, but we want all you ladies here by 9.30. What are they going to do all morning? Well, there's a certain adornment process that's going on. They're preparing themselves. And so God describes this preparation that he is making as a bride adorned for her husband. And so it's appropriate to call it the bride city. And so it's magnificent. In essence, when it comes down out of heaven, God is shouting, here comes the bride as it sits on this new earth. And the bride city is indeed appropriate because Old Testament saints are described as the bride of Yahweh, Jewish people, and Gentile proselytes who believed in the God of Israel. And the New Testament church is called the bride of Christ. And so this is the bride city. Now, if you've ever married off a daughter. I was blessed to marry just one off, but my, it was expensive. You know, I had no idea. I had married some sons already and have married a few more sons after that, but a bride, wow, it is expensive. But God will spare no cost. He will do whatever it takes to make this place beautiful. You know, my wife for years has had these butterfly gardens where she grows these, I call them butterfly plants. Gary could tell you the technical name and uh, at Baker's Nursery and where we get these plants and, you know, these monarchs come and they go through that whole process as a worm to a chrysalis and then they break open and when they break open, we love it when we get to catch them and you can hold them and set them on your nose or on your head for your grandkids and, you know, do a little show and, and you look at it so up close and it's so magnificent how God with all of his detail and precision like paints the wings of a butterfly. You look at a magnificent rose and its design God in all of his wisdom and all of his power is creating a city and a new heaven and a new earth that is absolutely breathtaking. 
So let's go to the third point there on your outline. Heaven also, notice, is a pleasing place. So unlike the current earth and heaven that is passing away, this heaven is going to be permanent. And unlike this earth that is fallen and corrupted by sin, this is prepared by the wisdom and power of God, and therefore heaven is a pleasing place. Look, if you will, now at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So following this initial revelation God gives of the new Jerusalem, John writes, I heard this loud voice coming from the throne of God. You see that in a number of places in the revelation. And he's giving a very interesting description of the very throne room of God. Think about the various dwelling places of God in Scripture. Initially, you meet God walking among men with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was magnificent. Certainly, it was not simply the luscious fruit or the perfect weather or the effortless work that made it so great, but that God walked with them in the cool of the day. It was the highest privilege someone could have, close, intimate companionship with the living God. Then sin entered into the world. And that was sadly lost. And so the Bible now describes us as coming into this world as being physically alive, but as being spiritually dead. And so God fulfilled his command to Adam, from any tree you may eat, but if you eat from that tree, the day you eat from it, you'll die. And so he instantly died on the inside. We are now born dying on the outside, and God wants to fix the problem. And unless it's fixed in your life, You will never have any meaning. Some of you are listening to me. You may be in Graniteville and Grays, and you're empty on the inside. And you don't know why. It's because you need to become rightly related to the Lord again. You must be born from above. You must have this second birth. So initially, you see God walking among men in the cool of the garden. Later on, we discover that God dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle. And later on, in the temple as he filled with his presence, the holy of holies. Still later on in John 1, 14, you know John 1, the prologue to the gospel, the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and then he says, and the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when it's important, where there's a, a nuance In the Greek, that's important for us to understand, the NASB will typically put it in the margin. So if you're in John 1.14, you should circle the word tabernacle because it says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He literally pitched his tent among us. By the way, if you're trying to help Jewish people, you should pray and care about Jewish people and don't write them off as unbelievers. When Israel was founded on May the 14th, 1948, there were three born-again Jews in all of Israel. Today, it's estimated there's over 30,000 born-again Jews. I've been privileged in my life to lead five Jewish people to faith in Christ. But one of the big showstoppers is the Shema. Hear, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And so for a Jewish person, that's something they recite every Sabbath day in the synagogue. For a Jewish person to embrace what we call 
the Trinity, a term not found in the Bible, but adopted in the second century, and a good term to describe the triunity of God. They think that as Christians, we worship three gods, and that we are really idolatrous in our view. But you can take them without ever going into the New Testament, just to Moses and the prophets and demonstrate the triunity of God. Not only do you have in the opening verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Barashit, in the beginning, Barashit bara Elohim, in the beginning created God. Hashemayim v'yed it's the heavens and the earth. It's a plural noun, God plural, with a singular verb. In the beginning, God plural, singular verb. Even in the opening verse, the triunity of God is affirmed. Let us make man in our image. Now, Rashi, a famous 12th century rabbi, said, well, that was God working with the angels. The angels weren't anywhere present at this point where they are involved in the creative work of God. Angels can't create, only God can create. That's God speaking. Let us make man in our image. But let me share with you some verses. This would be helpful to jot some of these down to show a Jewish person, or for that matter, a oneness Pentecostal like T.D. Jakes and his followers. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. I hope you know that. That's why he's a prosperity theologian and he's ripping people off and he's preaching another Jesus and another gospel. But we live in a day when people don't even know the Bible and they lack discernment. I'm not saying all Pentecostals, just oneness Pentecostals, or a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon. They all deny the doctrine of the Trinity. But let me just focus on, if you were sharing with the Jewish people, jot down this verse, Exodus 40 and verse 34. You can demonstrate from the Torah and from the prophets that God can dwell in two places simultaneously without ceasing to be one. Moses wrote this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord Yahweh filled the temple. And then in the very next chapter, now remember we got chapter and verse divisions, we even have scroll divisions, but Moses wrote one long big book, and so in the next scroll as it was started, he writes in Leviticus 1.1, now the Lord, same word, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him where? From the tent of meeting, saying. So God is in the tabernacle. And then in Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, God says, moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you. Same Hebrew phrase for God walking in the garden with Adam. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. So God lives among his people in their tabernacle, and yet Moses goes on to write in Deuteronomy how God is living in heaven above. Listen to these words in Deuteronomy 26 and verse 15. Moses prayed, look down from your holy dwelling place, from heaven, and bless your people, Israel, and the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as you swore to our fathers. So according to the Torah... God has two dwelling places at the same time. On the one hand, he is inhabiting the tabernacle. At the other hand, Moses is praying up to him in heaven. They don't believe from these passages, Jewish people, there's two gods. They affirm that God is one. Likewise, in 1 Kings 
Solomon dedicates the temple. Remember, they go from a tabernacle, which is like a tent structure, though it is called the temple on one occasion. And they build a more permanent structure called the temple. David says, I'm living in the house. God's living in the tent. This doesn't look right. And of course, he ended up through Solomon, his son, building the temple. And so we read in 1 Kings 8, and it happened that when the priests came from the holy place, this is dedication day, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then in verse 12, then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick cloud. I've surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. And then in the same moment he prays, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands towards heaven. That's when people lift their hands in Scripture in prayer to God. He spread out his hands towards heaven. And he said, Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping the covenant and showing faithfulness to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. So according to Solomon, God dwells in the Holy of Holies in the temple, but throughout his prayer of dedication, he's praying to God in heaven above, and there's no contradiction of God's oneness. And so God tabernacled among us in animal skins. We're in Israel on one occasion because we went to Petra. We're in a section of Israel we don't typically go to, and, and there was a tabernacle. I mean, it was an exact replica. These Messianic Jews had built it as a testimony of preaching to their Jewish neighbors of, of what Messiah would accomplish. And there was a house of skins that God dwelt in. And it's no different from John 1:14. When God comes in, he indwells in human skin. Once again, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. That's no different from what Moses taught in the Torah, where God can be in two places simultaneously and still be one God, without any contradiction whatsoever. Now, today, Christ obviously is not literally physically on the earth. And today, God is not dwelling in a temple made with human hands. But he is dwelling in human bodies of people who have been born from above. Under the Old Covenant, God had a temple for his people. Under the New Testament, the New Covenant, God has a people who are his temple. We are the temple of the Lord, Paul will write. Paul says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now back to verse three. That was an important aside, an important rabbit trail, and I hope you, you absorb some of it. Listen to verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, underscore that, and he will dwell among them, underscore that, and they shall be his people and he himself will be among them. Now, right now, as born-again people, we've been made alive, we're indwelt by the Spirit, and we are able to worship him whom we cannot see. But it's going to change dramatically, according to verse 3, because we're promised, and God himself will be among them. Now, we can't fully understand it right now as to what it's going to be like, but somehow the triune God will be present with us in the same way he was present with Adam. And it will happen in a new universe with brand new bodies in a new city, and we will have physical access to God in the Spirit and through his Son. 
in an eternity, if you, don't, if you know Christ as Lord, this is something you have to look forward to, to being in the very presence of God. I hope you understood, if you've been with us in this series, the presence of God in the future will be the chief terror for the unbeliever. For those who know the Lord, it will be their chief delight. So there in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me be with me where I am so that they may see your glory. Our eyes will see him, our ears will hear him, our hands will behold him, and this is what will make heaven, heaven. Going to heaven without the Lord Jesus being there would be like a bride going on her honeymoon without her groom. It'd be like building a house to move into as a new married couple and your husband wants to live in another city. No, the focal point of John's whole description is this new Jerusalem, the bride city, where the bride of the Old Testament and the bride of the New Testament will be. Behold, he goes on to say, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and he himself will be among them. Uninterrupted, eternal fellowship. That's why I say this is a pleasing place. And notice, described here in verse 4, um, there is a, a time where there's no eternal sorrow. There'll be some initial sorrow. You say there'll be some initial sorrow? Look at verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Paul describes the judgment of the just, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. Is a very sobering reality. Most Christians are very flippant about the fact that as redeemed, saved people, that they will give an account for how they have lived in these redeemed bodies. You know, we're down 30% in worship today. Why? Because there's an air show going on. I have no problems with people going to the air show. I'm sure we had more than 915 service because of the air show. It's a great thing to go to. But there are some parents who sent a message to their children this morning that the air show was more important than gathering with the people of God and worshiping the living God. And that's going to be implanted in the hearts of some children. Imagine if all our nursery workers said, oh, there's an air show, Randy. I can't come. And as every week God brings unchurched people and they come and there's no place for their child. Why? Because someone had to go see the air show. Listen, at the judgment seat of Christ, Paul describes that people will suffer loss. And so God, he doesn't use some unnamed angel. It's very personal God, even through our disobedience and compromise, will himself wipe away every tear from our eyes. Now, these are not tears of repentance. No one can repent in heaven. This is over. This is done. The judgment has already taken place at the end of chapter 20. But we can say that we will never shed another tear of more mourning or pain or sorrow, which is contextual. It doesn't mean that we'll never shed another tear. In fact, I suspect in heaven, our tear ducts will work perfectly. Some of us can't cry when we need to. I was on the phone this week with a tough, strapping young man, and he wept, and I wept with him. 
Some of us think we're too cool not to cry. But when we see the glory and splendor of heaven, we will probably shed tears of joy. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 029. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.